Mastermind Agent is proud to present success calls. Top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com. Hi, I'm Mike Cerrone with Mastermind Agent. This month's top agent is Bob Bolin with Lillian Montalto Signature Properties in Andover, Massachusetts. He is possibly the most productive real estate agent of all time. Last year, Bob sold 12 commercial properties with a total sales volume of $151 million. During his 25-year career, Bob sold 10,372 residential and commercial properties worth over $4 billion. Bob retired into real estate at age 50 after a long, successful career of running and operating multiple agricultural and manufacturing companies in the Midwest. Retirement lasted two weeks, and his amazing real estate career began. Bob quickly became the number one agent worldwide for Prudential Real Estate and held that title for 11 years in a row, beginning in 1991. In this call, Bob talks about selling hundreds of properties his first full year in real estate and earning $642,000 in commissions while working only six to eight hours per week by being an exclusive listing agent. Why you should be a listing agent and let everyone else work for you. Selling 1,100 properties in a single year. Focusing on multi-transactional sellers. Why residential agents should learn to value and sell commercial properties. An in-depth discussion of commercial real estate, including where to learn the commercial side, tools commercial agents use, the language and terms you need to know, how commercial agents are paid, and how big the checks can be, like the $1.5 million commission Bob earned on one transaction, where to find commercial buyers and sellers, how to market and sell commercial properties, how Bob built his real estate portfolio to include 2,000 apartment units and 13 million square feet of commercial property. Bob's teleprospecting system, he still makes 75 to 80 calls per day. Bob's script for calling expired listings and for sale by owners. Bob's four-minute listing presentation. Plus, discussions about clarity, code to text, window view, shadow and coaching programs, Vulcan 7, Tiger Leads, Hard Work Ethic, and more. First, a quick word from our sponsor, Real GTV, real estate agent lead generation television. Need more referrals? Get a free script and simple three-part plan used by a top agent to receive and close 74 referral transactions in one year. Just go to freereferralscript.com. That's freereferralscript.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome to the call, Bob. Well, nice to talk to you, Mike. Hey, Bob, it's great to have you here. Bob, before we talk about what you're doing today, let's go back for a minute and talk about what you did before you got into real estate. Well, I actually, Mike, retired into the real estate business 25 years ago. I had built and developed and run lots of businesses and companies from agriculture to manufacturing and Tried retiring two or three times during that process and decided it was no fun. The longest time I got to retire was two weeks before I got antsy and got started again. And I owned a major farm property in Michigan, northwest of Detroit, 
about 756 acres that we decided and I decided we were going to break into uh, development sites. At that time, there were purebred Angus cattle on it that I was raising and breeding, and so uh, I interviewed what was supposedly the three best agents in our marketplace, and they were all awful. So I decided to get a real estate license and just do it myself. Do I understand that you have a Ph.D.? I do in business from Curry College in Michigan. When you got into real estate, did you have a fast or a slow start? Well, I guess really pretty fast. I decided that I couldn't spend a lot of personal time because I was running other businesses and other activities, and so that I stepped back and decided that the best way to be a real estate agent was to be a listing agent only, and this was back in 89 and 1990, and so... uh, in my uh, first uh, full year in the business, I spent about, I guess, Mike, probably uh, six to eight hours a week in the business and earned $642,000 in commission and was the number one agent in the world for Prudential, much to my amazement. <laughs> how, how did you pull that off? Well, I just listed properties and let everybody else sell them. And uh, I listed hundreds of properties in my first year in the business. and wasted all the buyer leads and just let other people sell them for me because I wanted to be able to control my time and my destiny and have a life as well as be in the real estate business. And I was running other companies and businesses at that time. So frankly, it was about all the time I had to give. Five, six, seven, eight hours a week would be maximum. Wow. That's amazing. Do you recall what you were doing to generate your leads in business when you got in? Yeah, I... uh, did what I do today. I start every week out with uh, 10 business cards in my uh, jacket pocket and ask uh, everybody I bump into when I hand them a card who do they, who do they know that might be interested in buying or selling a real estate in the next six months and started prospecting and really focused because we were in a rapidly growing community in Brighton, Michigan at the time on multiple sellers. So I would list the farm of uh, 400 acres and divided into 70 or 80 parcels, and we would sell those parcels off for building sites. You weren't spending a lot of time in the business, so you weren't doing the development yourself. You were just helping people move along that process, buying the large parcel and splitting it up, and then you'd help them sell off the parts. Yeah, most of them had farm ground, and farm ground in that area was being converted into building sites then, and We'd figure out how to split up the farm into two-acre parcels, two-and-a-half-acre parcels, and 10-acre parcels, and uh, and or put roads in and sell those parcels to builders. And then I'd uh, list the uh, build jobs uh, for the builders and really get maybe four transactions out of a single transaction. And have you continued that type of work all throughout your career? Until uh, this morning at 8 o'clock. <laughs> When I met met with a landowner, he wants to divide his property up, yes. How long have you been in this business? What is that, about 25 years? 25 years, believe it or not, after I retired. I retired at 50, so that tells you I shouldn't be still doing real estate at 75, uh, which I'll be on my next birthday, but I like doing deals and I like solving problems, and that's what real estate brokerage is all about. In that 25 years, how many properties do you think you've sold? Somebody who keeps track of it is one of my assistants says 10,372. Do you know the sales volume of those transactions? Yes, something over Mike 4 billion. 
Wow, that is impressive. That is very rare. We've talked to several agents in the billion-dollar category, but not $4 billion. That's fantastic. My hope is that before I die and pass on, I can hit five. <laughs> Do you plan on continuing to work in the real estate all the way to the end? Absolutely. What else is there better to do? You help people, you solve problems, and you make money. And making money lets me afford to buy art. Oh, you're an art collector. Yes, Lillian and I collect lots of art. Oh, that's awesome. Well, Bob, uh, this affords me a rare opportunity. I usually talk with residential agents only. You've done residential and commercial, and what I'd like to do, if it's okay with you, is open up that side of the business and shed a little light on the commercial brokerage business. Would that be okay with you? Absolutely. Great. Let's do that. What kind of commercial properties do you sell? Well, I list and sell apartment properties, warehouse properties, office properties, retail properties, industrial properties, raw land development properties, anything that needs to be sold. I mean, when I first got in the real estate business, what I came to learn on a couple of fronts, Mike, is that every time an agent does a transaction, they're smarter than they were before they started the transaction. So if you're into curiosity and learning, then the more transactions you do, the better your base is. And unlike a lot of the commercial firms that focus on one particular segment, i.e. apartment properties, multifamily properties, or office properties in a eight-square-block area of New York or Chicago. In a little town that I was working in, Brighton, Michigan, which at the time had about 5,000 residents in the town, there wasn't enough commercial business to live off of. And so in order to create a living in the real estate business, you had to do vacant land, development land, commercial and residential in order to uh, generate enough income to uh, do what I at least wanted to do with my life and uh, with my investments. You branched out into all these different directions through necessity. Your market was not large enough to support working one niche. Uh, That's absolutely right. Necessity is the mother of invention, right? (laughs) That's right. That's right. So, If someone were in a very large market, say a million people or two million people or even larger, would you recommend that they niche down into one type of commercial property in this case, or should they keep their options open and go multiple directions? Well, I'm now on the north side of Boston where Lillian and I live and uh, work, but we work a market from the south side of Boston up to uh, Manchester, New Hampshire, which is uh, eh, 90 miles from maybe 100 miles from one end to the other, and a band uh, 60, 70 miles wide. And we basically do business of all kinds. And I work with her team and uh, my coaching students and to really try and persuade them to learn the fundamentals of the commercial business and how to evaluate commercial properties because if they do that, they're better able, in my opinion, to evaluate residential properties and to to comprehend the factors that go in to make up value on residential as well as commercial properties. So I've always told everybody in the two firms, Preview Properties in Michigan and, and Signature Properties here in Massachusetts, that they need to do 
both commercial and residential because I just think it opens up more doors. And I think when you're a commercial agent with a national firm, they've got a system down where they focus on a very small area. In Michigan, I worked the entire state. My market area was four and a half hours to the north, an hour and a half to the west, an hour to the east, and about an hour and a half to the south. And if there was business to be done, my view is always, if there was real estate business to be done, I wanted to be the one that was doing it. In a general perspective, how is residential sales different from commercial sales? Well, they're really not a lot different. Commercial sales are, are more analytical, and there's more to underwrite commercial sales to portray value. But for as long as I can remember, the best residential agents in the world have always had systems and processes that were way in advance of the best commercial agents. I can remember the top commercial agent in the Detroit market coming out to my office one day back in the mid-90s and saying, who is this person that works for you? Because he had never heard or seen about the concept of having a personal assistant and was blown away and went back the next day and hired one. So that's always kind of been true that the commercial agents have their own system, but traditionally it's not as expansive and it's not as systematic and it's not as process-oriented as uh, the, the best residential agents I know around the world. Have you identified why that has been true? Is it because the transactions in commercial take a bit longer to process from start to finish and the residential agents are doing more volume, they're doing it more repetitively? I think part of that, Mike, is that the top residential agents have continued to expand and do more and more and more business. And if you look at the top residential agents in America today, I mean, I can remember back in the mid-2000s, when I was doing 1,000 to 1,100 transactions a year, that was unheard of. Today, there's 15 or 20 or 30 agents doing that because the systems have been so refined that they're doing a lot of bank-owned properties and REO properties and short-sale properties and have designed and developed teams to do that. And therefore, there's a lot more leadership at the front of the systems and processes in the residential side than there is a commercial side. I mean, a typical really, really good commercial broker might do 15, 20, 25 transactions a year, higher dollar volume, similar commission to somebody doing uh, six or eight times that much on the residential side. But the reality is that Every time you do a transaction, as I said before, I think you get smarter and you figure out a little better way to do it. You mentioned these larger transactions. What do you think your average price has been on the commercial side? It's an interesting stat that I've never really studied, but I've done commercial transactions from $10,000 to $50 million. So the largest commercial transaction I've ever done was $50 million. I'm just in the process of finalizing that one now that's almost $60 million. But lots and lots of commercial transactions in the two, five, seven, ten million. I can remember back in 1999 when I did my first big commercial transaction, which was $25 million and collected a fee of $1.5 million. I like that a lot. So once you do that, you decide to look for other transactions like that. Where do you sell residential properties? 
some in Michigan, but that's mostly phased out now and transferred over to my other people that were on my team. So most of my residential transactions are in Massachusetts where uh, I live and I I don't spend a tremendous amount of time doing listing and selling in, in Massachusetts, but do, you know, a few dozen deals a year. Where are you selling commercial properties? Are you doing that in the same area? No, really the Midwest. I mean, the the commercial portfolio that I have assembled and with my team manage uh, is in Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, Michigan, Alabama, Tennessee, and Kentucky. Ah, huh, so, so that is spread out. So do you have licenses in all those states? No, we have somebody on our team that is licensed in those states, and generally... Uh, as buyers, we're paid a, a buyer fee, a buyer agent fee in the transaction, which can be done by either the referral system or transferred into Massachusetts or Michigan or Indiana or New Hampshire, where we have licenses. How does a, a residential agent add commercial to their portfolio? How do they how do they make that transition or that move over to commercial? Well, I think the first thing, Mike, is they have to decide it's of interest to them. And then secondarily, there's a great educational program called the the CCIM program, Certified Commercial Investment Member. It's a phenomenal education program and has a course of about five or six courses uh, that are core courses that you can take. They're each about a week long. At one time in our office in Michigan, we had... I think 41 or two people that were CCIMs and had gone through the program here in Boston and Andover, we have four in a much smaller office. So it's a great educational program, and you learn how to underwrite properties, evaluate properties, and the prospecting process to find uh, people interested in selling or buying is exactly the same as residential. Do they have continuing education courses in that CCIM program? How do you stay up on top of what's going on? Well, they do indeed, and they have a publication which is published each month, and it's an NAR-sponsored process. It's probably the best real estate educational program I'm aware of. Any other educational sources you could think of for someone wanting to get into commercial? Well, I mean, the the best thing to do, in my opinion, is always what I've suggested and done for years, and that is... Find a commercial broker that you like, uh, pay him to go shadow him for a day. I mean, I have over the course of the year 10 or 15 people come and shadow me, and Lillian has people come and shadow her so that you can see firsthand what they do and learn from them how they do it. It's probably the cheapest investment anybody can make. In the residential world, there are certain terms that we get used to, days on market and a CMA, and so forth. What kind of terms and concepts would people need to know to move into the commercial side? What kind of language would they need to learn? Well, you have to realize, Mike, and I know you do, that there are four types of returns from commercial real estate. Cash on cash return, the amount of money you can write a check to yourself for each month by owning a kind of property. Principal pay down, the amount of money that the mortgage is paid down on a monthly basis. Appreciation, which is what happens to commercial property when rental rates go up. And lastly, the tax gain or loss in the process so that apartment properties generally distribute cash-on-cash distributions. Commercial property have a longer depreciation period, 39 and a half years. So 
there's more of the income coming out of those properties that's taxable. So you need to understand the concept of cash on cash return, principal pay down, appreciation, and tax gain or loss. Also, there's a uh, the CCIM Institute has developed a form called an APOD, Annual Property Operating Data Form, which we use to underwrite all the properties we look at. And since I'm and, and Lillian and our team here is always interested in acquiring additional properties, we evaluate, Mike, probably uh, 75 to 100 properties a week all over the United States to determine if they're worth taking a serious look at to buy. And that's based upon an APOD, based upon cap rate, meaning the rate of return if you paid cash for the property that you would get back on an annual basis. And, of course, as always, real estate's about location, location, location. So we try and position ourselves into areas that have net-in migration and growth potential so that the property will appreciate as rents go up. That's interesting. So you're looking at demographic movements as well. Are people moving into the area or out? And what type of businesses maybe are moving in or out? Where are you getting that type of information? The CCIM Institute has a website that if you're in the education process with them to become certified as a CCIM, that you can access that information from very easily. And there are other sources but since Lily and I are both CCIMs, we go to that site and pull all the demographic data. I mean, ethnicity, income, household income, individual income, education levels, growth patterns over a period of the last 10 years, and growth patterns projected going forward for 10 years in the future. That CCIM has really been a huge resource for you in your commercial side, hasn't it? It is for everybody who's in the program, and the neatest thing is that when one CCIM talks to another, we have a total basis of understanding how to communicate and that the other person knows what's needed to be known about a specific property. So you learned the language in the CCIM and you can communicate now with the other commercial brokers. You speak the language. You don't look like you're, you're a fish out of water. It's really helped you to move forward. I think that's really impressive and a great piece of advice. Also, I didn't realize that you not only received the education, but it really is ongoing. You have these other resources that you can tap into to continue to, to operate in the commercial side. Absolutely correct. And they're really a valuable asset, Mike. You brought this up a little earlier that valuing these properties is something that you do all the time. You have a couple different models for doing that. Give us a, a little more insight into that. Most of the residential agents are familiar with the sales comparison approach, but I assume there are other ways that you're valuing these properties. And in addition to that, my question is, are you valuing these properties or are you bringing in an appraiser to value the properties? Interestingly enough, back in the early 90s, I think I was the first agent in the country to insist that all of my sellers do pre-appraisals of residential property and pre-inspections of residential property, and we still do a lot of that because that establishes value. I tell each of my sellers, even today, that I have to sell their property four times. I have to sell it to a buyer's agent. I have to sell it to the buyer. I have to sell it to the lender's appraiser and I have to sell it to the lender. So if we get a pre-appraisal done and a pre-inspection done and get a valid offer, we've climbed over three of those four hurdles pretty quickly. Does that make sense? It does. And so 
in commercial properties, I mean, I listed a restaurant yesterday and actually a restaurant in the building was in the day before here in Massachusetts and one in New Hampshire. And uh, we did a annual property operating data form. In other words, we looked at the revenue. We looked at the cost of collecting the revenue, the taxes, the labor costs, the food costs, their last two years tax returns, and then applied a value to their uh, pre-tax cash flow in terms of pricing the property. And the same would be true if we had a commercial building. We would analyze the income, apply a vacancy rate, apply a management cost, apply the property taxes, apply uh, energy and utilities costs if it were not a triple net or an absolute net lease, and then do a calculation on what's called the net operating income and then capitalize that net operating income at a value that we thought made sense. In today's market, uh, I see uh, Walgreens selling at a five or a five and a half cap consistently across the country, CVS properties similarly, McDonald's ground leases and property cap rates are in the fours. If you buy a commercial building with a very short lease, that capitalization rate may be eight, nine, nine and a half, maybe even ten on occasion, depending upon the length of the lease and the location of the property. So you're able, by taking all of these pieces that we've talked about previously, putting them down on a piece of paper to really evaluate the property, and appraisers will use exactly the same process on commercial properties. They will also use current sale comps. So uh, they have a combination of both, and then they calculate the value of replacement, but it has very little, if any, meaning in terms of the ultimate value the appraiser puts on the property. So it sounds like in the commercial arena, there's a heavier emphasis placed on the income approach to value. There is. I mean, it really boils down to the income approach on the property plus comparable recent sales. But lots of times on commercial buildings, there aren't any comparable recent sales in in that geographic area. So it really boils down to the annual property NOI and what cap rate you're going to apply, what rate of return an investor or owner wants for uh, investing his dollars to acquire that property. Let's do that for everyone. Let's, Let's talk a little more about this NOI and the cap rate. So this net operating income, basically, it's the net profit that would come out the bottom of this business called a piece of real estate after the course of a year if you had no mortgage on the property. Is that correct? That's correct. And no depreciation is taken into the NOI calculation. So it's purely cash on cash before debt service in terms of net operating income after all the expenses in the course of a year, including a reserve for capital expenditures, i.e. roof or parking lot or exterior of a building, are calculated in terms of assessing value. So if you bought a building for a million dollars and at the end of the year it threw out $100,000 of NOI, now we can find out what the cap rate is, and that cap rate is that relationship, right? That's correct. So that would be a 10-cap property, 10-capitalization rate property, 10% return on the million-dollar purchase price for cash. And that's easy to do after the sell, but before the sell, and you're going to start negotiating, you're going to have to try to determine what that cap rate is. And that's been a question out there because it's kind of a negotiated term, 
But you said what you do is you'll go out and research similar properties that have sold recently and what their cap rates were, and you're able to tap into this database that the CCIM keeps. Is that correct? That's correct, plus LoopNet, plus CoStar, the MLS system. So those are the four big sources for data, Mike. MLS, CoStar, LoopNet, and the CCIM site to do business. And, of course, conversely, when you list a property, those would be the same four sources that you would want to expose it on, plus a variety of websites. You said you're valuing 75 to 100 properties per week. It sounds like a lot of work to get down to what that NOI is. Are are you just doing maybe a, a quick thumb sketch idea of what these numbers are, and then if you decide to move forward on the property, you'll, you'll do more due diligence, you'll do more investigation? Well, that's exactly right. And most of the people who uh, have listed properties understand these terms, and some brokers don't underwrite them as completely as others, but uh, the really good brokers, you can take a look at their numbers on a quick summary, look at the geographic location, look at the lease term, and determine whether you're in agreement with their cap rate or not. Do you find that typically the NOIs represented in the marketing and the sales literature are accurate? No. How do you do the research to find out what the real numbers are? Well, let's suppose that we see a property that's listed as a nine cap in uh, pick a spot where we own a lot of properties in Fort Wayne, Indiana. We then look at the broker and probably have a pretty good feel for how intense and uh, comprehensive their valuations are. We'll then send a quick email and say, send us your uh, APOD or annual property operating data sheet and see in a millisecond what they've included or not. Maybe they didn't put a management fee in. Maybe they didn't put any CapEx or capital expenditure or TINLC, Tenant Improvements and Leasing Commissions. So maybe they may be incomplete, and we have formulas for the type of property to plug in immediately, and probably within 45 seconds of getting the information back, we can tell whether it's a property that we're interested in or not. Wow. It's a really quick process once you have practiced doing it as many times as we have. Know the brokers, a lot of them involved, and know the geographic area. And then if it meets our criteria, and our criteria for investing currently is to try and get between an 8 and 10% cash-on-cash return properly underwritten, then we'll delve further into the property and have somebody even go by and look at it very quickly. Bob, when you're talking, it sounds like you're looking as an investor for yourself, your own portfolio. And it also sounds like you, you own these commercial properties in your own portfolio. Is that true? Are you, are you looking for properties both for yourself and for your clients? Absolutely, both. Did I understand correctly? You have a portfolio then that, that expands all over the country? Primarily through the Midwest. We have a few thousand apartments and oh, 13 or 14 million square feet of office, warehouse, and retail space. Did you say that's in your own personal portfolio? Yeah, I have that along with some uh, affiliated shareholders, and my management company runs and manages all, all those properties. Well, that's fantastic. Congratulations. Or condolences sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> wow, uh, that's spectacular. 
That's spectacular. So, so you not only help people in brokering these transactions, you become a participant. Were you a participant first and then decided to become a, a broker on the commercial side, or did you broker first? I was really a, a, a participant first. Back in 1989, before you were born, Mike, uh, <laughs> one of the brokers in my office in Michigan said to me, why don't you buy this two-family outside of Brighton, Michigan? And so I took a look at it. The cash flows made sense. So I invested my commissions, financed the rest, and within three or four years, we had about 400 duplexes and then did 1031 tax-deferred exchanges into bigger properties, into uh, 302 units and 500 units and 464 apartment units back in the late 90s and early 2000s and uh, just grew from there. That's amazing. You obviously don't manage all these properties yourself. Do you have your own management company that manages these, or did you hire outside management? No, I have two management companies that I own, and they manage all of our properties. Let's go back into looking at this commercial side. You start to bring it up. When you get a commercial property, you've been hired to sell it. You say you do a lot of work on the listing side. How do you market one of these commercial properties? We put it on LoopNet, CoStar, CCIM site to do business, and the local or regional MLS system, and then we have a database of people that we know who are potential investors in commercial property. We email or text them when a new listing comes on. And then I also, five years ago, when I moved back from Michigan to be full-time here in Massachusetts, came across a system called Meetup, M-E-E-T-U-P. And I decided, because I've always been a great proponent in not spending money on marketing, I came through that back in the early 90s in personal promotion and marketing, and after we did analytics, decided that the return on investment was not high enough so that we needed to figure out how to prospect better and find buyers and sellers better. And that's when we really perfected, or I don't know if we ever perfect, but really developed the teleprospecting system that we have in place today and that I've used my whole life. So I started a meetup group and here in Massachusetts, and we meet on the second Tuesday of every month from 6.30 to 8. There are now 515 people in that group, and a typical meeting will have 50, 60, 70 people come. And it was a way for me to give back and teach people how to evaluate property, commercial property and multifamily property, just like we do, so that they could save a lot of their time and energy and do a simple underwriting before they went by and drove by the property to see if they liked it or not. So I've been doing that. I think I'm having my, uh, this next Tuesday, my uh, 58th meeting of that group, one a month for the last 58 months. And I probably sold, I don't know, a couple hundred properties to people in that group, as well as help them learn how to evaluate and underwrite the properties. Wow. So you've created your own networking group. Exactly. If somebody wanted to come to one of those meetings and and hear what you're doing, they're up in your neck of the woods, what's the name of the meetup? Is there a way that they can find out more information about it? Sure. If they go on the web, it's meetup.com. 
income real estate investing, and they would type in the zip code 01810. And I've never charged anybody to come. We provide and I provide an agenda and an outline of the things we talk about, everything from politics to health to uh, uh, what's going on in the economic world around us and in, in the international economic arena and generally do one or two case studies of properties that we're looking at or I'm looking at to buy or that we think makes sense for may make sense for somebody in the group, Mike. That's awesome. Now, you mentioned that one of your major ways to market is teleprospecting. Tell us more about that. It sounds like that's been part of your entire career. What exactly do you mean by that? How does that look? What are you doing? Well, a fellow in the insurance business taught me in the late 80s a lot about the process of teleprospecting. He and I were working on a project, and he'd had financial difficulties in Birmingham, Alabama, in the airplane business, and decided he wanted to relocate to San Francisco and was selling an investment product back then that nobody needed necessarily or nobody had to have, but that he thought made a lot of sense. He relocated to San Francisco and started calling people in the phone book, starting with A, going to Z, and when he got to Z, turning around and going back to A and starting all over again. And in his first 11 months in San Francisco, he made $620,000, so he really got my attention. So after that, we worked with Mike Ferry way back in the early 90s, and Mike was very creative and is a great communicator, the best I've ever known. And he uh, came up with a system of scripts and dialogues for teleprospecting because teleprospecting is really the only predictable, repeatable, duplicatable way to generate people who want to buy or sell real estate. So we still use it today, every day. I'll make today 75 or 80 calls myself, and, and we have a 100-call-a-day attempt for each of the people on Bullion's team. So out of this office today, between Lillian and I and the five young people that are on her team, we will uh, generate eh, six, seven hundred calls, outgoing calls a day. Wow. How long does that take you or one of the folks on your team to make 100 calls? Well, to make the attempts, generally less than two hours with the system we have. When you say the system, are you using a, an auto dialer? Well, we're using a system on expireds and for sale by owners called Vulcan 7, which is, I think, the leading piece of technology in that arena today. And it automatically, the minute a, a voicemail answers, you hit a button and it leaves a message. Hi, this is Bob. I have a couple of important questions to ask you about your property. Would you call me at 978-475-1400? And it's leaving that message saying it's Tuesday Bob, I'm calling with a couple of important questions about your property. Would you call me at? And the callbacks are significant. And then if we reach somebody, we have a script to use uh, as well when we reach somebody uh, talking about uh, their listings. Would you mind walking us through that script uh, if you do get a hold of them? Sure. Hi, Mike. This is Bob from Signature Properties. I was just checking to see, uh, do you still need to sell your property? Yes. Terrific. When are you going to be interviewing agents for the job of getting your property sold? And when can I share with you how we get properties like yours sold? Would this afternoon work or would tomorrow be better? Maybe, uh, maybe Monday. Terrific. 
Let me ask you something, Mike. Do you have any other decision makers in your family who need to be at that meeting to help decide whether you're going to put me to work or not? Well, my wife owns the property with me. Terrific. Can she be there Monday, and will three or four be better? Uh, uh, she can if we do it at uh, 4.30. Terrific. I look forward to seeing you then. That's if I'm going to the property. And if I'm bringing him into the office or CITOing him, C-I-T-O, come into the office, then I would invite him into the office uh, if they're in an area that uh, is easy, easily accessible. <laughs> that was so that was so smooth and so quick. Does it normally happen that fast that somebody makes a decision that quickly, or or do you get some kind of resistance and you have to deal with it? Well, that'd be very normal. If you get resistance, why is that? Really? And if I could solve that problem with you or for you, uh, would you be willing to uh, sit down today or tomorrow? sounds like you've really mastered these scripts, uh, and you mentioned that the, the basis of the scripts that you used are Mike Ferry. Do you still use the Mike Ferry scripts, or did you modify them uh, through time? We've modified them, but his scripts are fine for a new agent. Yeah, I like how it gets right to the point. One rule, the less said, always the better. You're still making 75 to 80 prospecting calls. Did you say per day or per week? How often are you doing that? Per day. Wow, that's amazing that you're that productive, doing what most people would think would be something you would do only when you start your business, but you've continued to do it. You mentioned that you did a lot of testing on personal promotion and personal marketing, and that you decided that those returns were not high enough. What kind of results were you seeing when you did that investigation? I published two or three great personal brochures back in the early 90s, and uh, they were ego pieces. I looked good. The pictures looked good. The fact, two of the pieces won national uh, advertising awards for their quality and content, but in the end, they were more about me than they were about the people I was trying to work with, buyers or sellers. And when you figure that out, we're basically in this business of real estate brokerage problem solvers. And if we can convey the energy that we're problem solvers and can help them, you don't need anything. I mean, today, my listing appointment, my listing presentation, Mike, is someplace between three and five minutes at the most. I can remember years ago when people used to do listing presentations that lasted two hours. (laughs) I've been on some that lasted four hours. How do you condense it down to three to five minutes? Well, Mike, let's play. Let's just assume you're the seller. You ready? Let's go. Mike, thanks for seeing me today. Let me ask you, do you absolutely need to sell your home? Yes. And when did you buy it? Uh, We bought back in uh, 1992. And what did you pay for it when you bought it? Uh, Back then we paid 25,000. Fabulous. And how many dollars in capital expenditures, not repairs, but capital expenditures have you spent on it? Looks like you put in a new swimming pool. Is that right? That's right. If I had to guess, I'd say maybe 35000 Okay. So if somebody walked in the front door today with a check, including my fee, what are you willing to accept? Oh, um, you know, that's what we were kind of hoping to, to get from you is what's, what's the value of our home. 
I understand, and I'll be happy to give that to you, but I've sold thousands and thousands of homes, and I've always found that the owners have a, a number in their mind. What's yours? Uh, we were we were thinking that this property is worth 380000 Oh, wow. Okay, great. So where are you moving to when you move, Mike? We're going to be moving down to Pensacola, Florida. Great. Would it be helpful if I hooked you up with one of the best agents in Pensacola and got your relocation package for there? Uh, that'd be great. Good. I'll have uh, a relocation package delivered to you uh, day after tomorrow. Let me ask you, did you have a chance to review my pre-listing package that was uh, emailed to you or dropped off to you? Yes, it was quite impressive. Good. Do you feel like I'm qualified to handle this transaction for you? Uh, we do. Are you ready to put me to work? Um, yeah, I think we are. Terrific. Sign here. Press hard. I need three copies. Wow. Well, that was quick. <laughs> and is that normally what happens? It's exactly what happens. Wow, because you've already set that up. And so sending out that pre-listing packet has given them all the preliminary information. How often have they already read or learn the information in that packet, and how often do you have to go back and retract through it? I never go back and retract through it. 95% of the time they've read it, 5% they don't. Within the first 15 to 30 seconds of meeting you, they'll decide based upon your energy as it relates to theirs whether they're prepared to put you to work or not. Now, a quick word from our sponsor, Real GTV, real estate agent lead generation television where top agents reveal exactly how they create consistent flows of home buyer and home seller leads into their practices every month. Need more leads? Hit the pause button right now. Open Google and search RealGTV. That's R-E-A-L-G dot TV. Now, back to the show. Wow. It goes back to your concept you said earlier, the less you say, the better. Absolutely. And never make a statement. Just ask questions, J-A-Q. Yeah, I've noticed that, that you seem to take control of these conversations by asking the questions. You're directing where everything's going by asking those questions. And saving everybody a lot of time. You do that with your prospecting calls as well, don't you? You ask a question to find out where they are and decide what to do next. Absolutely. I heard a video that you did long, long ago. I, I watched it over and over and over again. And you did a listing presentation. I think you had 20 questions at that time. It sounds like you've reduced it dramatically. Well, I can ask 20 questions if the circumstances needed, or I can ask 120 questions. But if somebody's ready to put you to work, why bother asking any other questions? Ask them after you get the listing signed. Good point. Do you also follow that same process when you're listing a commercial property? Exactly the same, Mike. No different. Wow. This restaurant listing I took yesterday afternoon here in Andover, I uh, asked him about 18 or 19 questions. I didn't count them. But I know everything I need to know based upon value. And I think, you know, I wrote a book that sold a lot of copies called Clarity a couple of years ago. In fact, we're on our fifth printing, I think, or sixth printing. But anyway, it contains 85 life lessons I've learned the hard way too late. I always ask myself four questions before every meeting in my head. 
and it totally shifts my energy. And people recognize that. And the four questions are, I wonder what I'm going to learn from this meeting. I wonder if I'm going to like the people. I wonder if I'm going to be able to help them. And lastly, I wonder if I want to. And when I, in my head, go through, I wonder if I want to, it totally detaches me from the outcome. And what I've learned is the more detached you are from the outcome, the more attached it gets to you. Well, that's great. And the book Clarity, when did you initially write it? I wrote it about two years ago. Two years ago. And you're already in, did you say, the fifth printing? Yeah, I think the fifth, maybe the sixth printing, I don't know. Oh, that's great. Congratulations. If people wanted to pick that book up, where would they go? Well, it's been on Amazon, but it's, we're out again, and so we're in the middle of printing. Uh, we can also, if they email me, bob at andoverhomes.com, we can sell them an ebook. We also have audio books, and then the hard copies are probably going to, the next shipment's going to be here in probably a couple of weeks. So bob at andoverhomes.com, if that's of interest to them, I'll be happy to ship them a book. Excellent. Going back to the commercial properties, you mentioned that in the residential side, that years ago you brought up this idea of a pre-appraisal and a pre-inspection. Do you do that on the commercial side as well? Generally not, because I think I can figure out exactly what a commercial property is worth based upon the tools in the APOD. Do you do any type of physical inspection of the property? I do, although I must tell you I've sold hundreds of properties that I've never seen before. Probably not a very good thing to discuss, but that's absolutely correct. There'll be all kinds of due diligence by the buyer where they'll do the inspections. Of course, you've already invested some time and effort and money into the project by then. So I guess it's a business decision. If you were to look at it, what percentage of the properties have you done your inspection or had a pre-inspection done versus you don't really know the condition of the property yet? Well, if you've been through a lot of properties, you pretty well know the condition of, a, of the property. The reason to know the condition of the property is to have an estimate of what the buyer is going to need to spend to bring it up to date. I mean, I just listed and sold a building here in Andover for 895000 had 62 showings in two weeks and seven offers. And we didn't take the highest offer simply because somebody that had a little lower offer had figured out exactly what they were going to have to spend and did their own inspection before they wrote the offer. And so we know that's going to close. So, you know, all offers are price and terms, and sometimes the terms are more important than the price. You also mentioned a couple times that you've just recently listed a a restaurant for sale. Are you saying that you're selling the business as well as the real estate or just the business or just the real estate? Are they attached and you're selling both or have you separated them? In the case of the two listings I took this week, one is the real estate and the business. The other is just the business. So the one that's just the business has a lease with 10 years remaining on the lease and uh, the furniture, fixtures, and equipment and the earning stream and cash flow for that business, and he wants to retire, and so uh, we'll sell just the business. Uh, a bank owns the building, and the bank located a branch in the building, so the reality is 
the building will never be available. So you are also brokering businesses. Yes, and have for years and years. I think I've sold 125 or 126 businesses in the restaurant arena. Do you take a, a different approach to selling businesses than real estate, or are they very similar? They're very similar. You underwrite them. You determine what's possible, whether the owner's taking a, a management salary out of them or not, and if so, how much, and is it reasonable, and then come up with a net cash flow for the restaurant, assuming no changes, and then you look at the operation and see whether or not it can be changed. In the restaurant that I listed yesterday, the owner simply serves breakfast and lunch. He needs to be serving breakfast, lunch, and dinner. McDonald's figured that out years ago. you got the same fixed cost. All you have is labor and food cost if you serve three meals a day versus two. When you go into the business brokerage side, I think one of the questions would be, how do you sell that as far as the marketing? Are you also listing it in the same areas, the same websites and, and networks that you would do the real estate, or is that a different arena? No, it's the same, but there's also a business brokers network, and we put it into that system as well, Mike. Back to our, our commercial sales and commercial properties, who are the players, the buyers and sellers? Are you typically dealing with individuals or institutions? Well, we deal with both for uh, institutional-grade commercial property. I mean, I'm negotiating the sale of one of our properties uh, in Cincinnati, Ohio, as I speak, and it's a Class A, A-minus property, big warehouse, 245,000-square-foot warehouse, leased to Office Max. And uh, there's five institutional players trying to uh, negotiate with us to acquire that property. Most of the times on the smaller properties, multifamily, uh, single-family uh, residential rentals, or the smaller office spaces or retail spaces, you're dealing with individuals. Although more and more with the hedge funds in play and the being awash with cash, those hedge funds are always looking to acquire commercial real estate that they can add value to or that makes sense to them. When you deal with the institutions, how is it different than dealing with the individual? The biggest difference is it's not their money. So they're in management and they follow a very strict set of guidelines in evaluating the property. But people do business with people, and if you know people in those institutions, when you find something that fits and you call them, they'll respond very quickly and tell you whether they like the property or they don't, whether it makes sense or not. We're in the people business, Mike, and so it doesn't make any difference. You don't sell a property to an institution. You sell the property to uh, two or three people who believe the institution should buy it, and your relationship is with those individuals. How do you know how to identify the appropriate people inside the institution to be talking to? Well, almost all of them have an acquisitions department. The people in those acquisitions department either have some authority or no authority or a lot of authority, and you don't know that till you talk to them and find out what their process is, how they're going to evaluate it, and how long they're going to take to evaluate it. On the commercial side, I'm sure a lot of the agents that are listening to us who, who haven't done anything in the commercial side, they've got a question, you know, is it worth it to, to go into this side? What type of compensation structures are set up on the commercial side? Generally, they're commission structures, just like residential. 
sometimes the commission structure somewhat less in terms of a percentage, but the deals are bigger. So it works out, and the answer is I think everybody has to decide what their market's like. As I said at the outset of this interview, Mike, my market in a little town in Michigan wasn't big enough that I could live and eat off of the commercial property, so I had to do everything. And uh, it served me very, very well. And to all of my coaching students who I talk to once a week, I insist that they consider doing exactly the same because they can make more money doing both than they can doing one or the other. You've done all these commercial transactions. I understand who you do teleprospecting to on the residential side. Who are you calling on the commercial side? Are are these the same phone calls and then you just happen to find out there's commercial property involved? Or are you prospecting a, a different group of people? No, you're prospecting the same group of people, but a different group of people. And we have people on the residential side the last thing we always ask them at a closing or uh, when we list a property is what other properties are you interested in buying or selling or what other properties do you have that you would be interested in buying or selling because maybe we can help you with those as well. And one out of four people has something else, amazingly enough. Bob, do you have any other advice for a residential agent who's thinking about going and adding or even moving into the commercial side? As I said before, find the best commercial agent in your market, pay them whatever they want to shadow them for a day, and take a look at that as a, as a pretty good starting place to determine whether you're cut out for the commercial side and whether there's enough business in the commercial side to warrant your involvement. And whether you're willing to commit to learn the process to be able to do commercial business is no different than the residential business. I mean, there's a learning curve with both. You look at ABR and GRI and CRS, CRB, and all of those are designations and learning processes good residential agents go through to get better. Bob, you mentioned the shadow program. Uh, You said you also allow folks to shadow you. If somebody were going to look into a shadow program, what would they expect? What would happen uh, during that day, and what kind of fees would they be looking at? For my international shadow clients, it costs them $5,000 a day to follow me around. If it's a domestic agent or U.S. agent, I charge them $4,000 for the day. And they come, they stay with us at our home, they get up at 5 o'clock in the morning, they spend a full day doing, sitting with me watching what I do or watching what Lillian does every day. They leave the next morning on an airplane out, and if they don't learn 50 things while they're staying with us and spending time with us, I feel like they haven't gotten their money's worth. So they literally are shadowing you. They're, they're walking right behind you asking questions between your activities, but mainly watching your activities, watching you make those phone calls each day, and how you go about your day. Yes, and then we have a package for them, including reading lists, and, and uh, I'm a great believer in that you need to re- everybody needs to read more and that you uh, become what you read. Uh, our uh, pre-listing package, our uh, pre-buyer packages, I mean, we have a probably a package that's five inches thick that they take home with them. All the questions to ask uh, uh, when they make the prospecting calls or go on appointments, et cetera. So 
they see exactly what we do every day, and somehow seeing it makes it different than hearing about it. I don't know why that is. I guess I do know why it is, because, you know, we only hear and retain about 15 or 20 percent of what we hear, but seeing it in person maybe helps us retain 40 or 50 percent. But I've been doing it for years, and I won't take a coaching student on unless they come and shadow me for a day to determine what they really want to do and what their goals and objectives are. We do personal and business planning with them so they can figure out what they want to really accomplish and and get our thoughts on whether that's doable or not. You mentioned a couple of topics that you'd like to, to touch on today. Let's let's do kind of a quick session, and you can give us some quick highlights on, on each of these. You've already talked about meetups. I think you mentioned something called Code Text. Could you tell us more about that? It's actually Code to Text. We started doing it a year ago, a little less than a year ago, and it allows us to text our loyalty program benefits to all of our database via cell phone today. I mean, IBM came out with a study in, in July of 2013, last summer, which said that 96% of U.S. postal mail never gets opened, 92% of email never gets opened, and 88% of texts get responded to within two to three minutes. So... Frankly, the U.S. Postal Service is outdated, emails outdated, and texting is where it's at. So code to text is the first system, and, and our office was the first office in the United States, to use it. So we put a text number on top of our signs on properties for sale. People can stop in front of it, land on a mobile website, take a visual tour of the property, learn everything about the property while they're in front of it off their cell phone. And the neat thing is that we get their cell phone number immediately and we can call them while they're still in front of the property. I'm trying to break that down in my mind's eye. You've got a couple of components there. One is the sign writer where someone can get a text message of information on that property. That gives you their cell number. And I was expecting you to say that at that point you would text them since so many people open it. But you said you would turn around and call them. Are you using this system to send out text messages or to capture cell numbers? Two functions, capture cell phone numbers and be able to talk to the people immediately, if not sooner. And secondly, then, we text uh, benefits in our loyalty program or text a hot new listing to our database the minute we have it. And as an example, we have a loyalty program that if you're in our database, about 38,000 people, in Lillian's database, and I have another uh, five or 6,000 that are Massachusetts database, we'll send them a 50% off coupon for uh, one of the vendors we work with, uh, a two-for-one dinner at a location. And all they have to do is take their cell phone to the uh, restaurant in order to validate it. So we're sending them things to a month that give them economic benefits for being a past or current customer or client of our real estate firm. Bob, I, I have a, a question, and, and I don't know if you want to answer this. My question is this. You seem to have this really great desire to learn and then to apply and, and move forward. And I, I'm just thinking in the back of my head, I'm wondering how you grew up. You must have learned a lot of this somehow in your youth. Would you mind telling us what your youth was like? 
Did you learn lessons from your, your family? How did you get this deep desire to learn and then take these ideas and put them out there into the, into the world? I grew up on a little farm in central Illinois. My dad was a school teacher and a high school coach, football coach. And then when I was five years old, moved from a town of 600 people to a farm in the country because he didn't want us to grow up in the city. Huh? 600 people. Can you manage the city? <laughs> and so he was a college graduate. My mother was a college graduate, which was unusual back at that time. And they had two thoughts. I'm one of five kids that survived. The other four are a lot more successful than I am. Some of them have already retired, but all younger. We always were, I mean, it was not a question of whether or not I would go to college. That was a given. The only question was where. There wasn't much doubt about that because I'd had that University of Illinois pounded in my head by then, and it was 60 miles away, so it wasn't so far away from the family farm. I went to school at the University of Illinois on seven scholarships, including an athletic scholarship. Worked 40 hours a week while I was at the university and going to school and playing athletics a little. And then my senior year of college, I managed an agricultural operation, which was 80 miles away from Champaign-Urbana. And I'd leave there on Thursday night and come back on Sunday night. My objective was to uh, be the highest paid graduating senior that year at the University of Illinois. And as far as I know, I was because I was making more managing an agricultural operation in, in, near Indianapolis than any of my college professors were. So I thought that was, I'd accomplished that task and developed a lot of strong friendships over the years from students that still are in existence and was basically a graduate in animal science. So it didn't have very much to do with selling real estate. Was involved in starting the certified Angus beef program in the United States at a 57 ice cream stores at one time. We sold the Baskin Robbins and just ran a lot of, was involved in running a lot of different businesses. And I said before, I believe, Mike, that you become what you read. So I've always been an avaricious reader. I mean, I try and read uh, at least one, preferably two books a week still. And it's all part of I believe as long as we're learning and growing, we get allowed to hang around the planet, and when we quit, we don't. I mean, if you look at GM, Ford, and Chrysler statistics about retirees, the average length of life of a retiree is about 2.7 years, based upon that automotive industry report. So I'm not ready to die yet, so it's important I keep learning. I have to assume that working on those farms, you learned your work ethic, this this strong drive to get something done each day. Is that true? Oh, it's very true. I mean, if you think about mowing down a hayfield, you can see where you're going and you can see where you've been. I started driving a tractor when I was eight years old on the farm. You didn't have any choice. You had to work to eat, you know. I must assume that your father and your mother were driving you as well. It sounds like they set it up in your mind's eye that you were going to get these things done. It, it, there was no other options. Well, that's really true. I mean, when I, I talk about the book Clarity, when I was five years old, my dad put me in a farm truck, drove me to another farm, and had me go inside the house and wait. I can see it like it was yesterday, and that's a long time ago. Came back out. 
and there were two shorthorn heifers in the back of the truck. One was red and one was white. He said, if you choose, you can have your pick of the two heifers, but you have to sign a note for what I paid for them, and you pay the note off by the uh, replacement of her first heifer calf or her first two bull calves, and you got to learn how to feed them and take care of them. Otherwise, you can't have them. So pretty good lesson in economics at age five. At age five. Wow. Bob, do you have children? I have two. Scott and Lisa now own and run Preview Properties in Michigan. They acquired it and the majority ownership now five years ago and couldn't wait to get me out of town. (laughs) (laughs) Did, Did you teach them similar lessons at age five and eight? Well, they've learned all the lessons. I mean, they both were very successful in careers before coming back. And Scott runs the firm, and Lisa is the financial person in the firm. And they've never been anything but a joy. And they, Scott has three grandchildren, and they're a joy. And they never provided one minute's problem. And one thing they for sure understood is, unlike the generation today from 17 years of age to 34 or 5, They're older than that. They never felt entitled to anything. They knew they had to earn it, and they have. So I'm really proud of them from that perspective. Bob, you've mentioned books, and you've read a lot. I don't know if you're going to be able to do this because you've read so many, but could you make, say, a quick recommendation of, say, the top three books that any real estate agent should read? Well, no, but there are three books I've read in the last two weeks that I could recommend. One is E-squared by Pam Grout. Uh, It's a study of energy and a group of experiments related to the fact that uh, I happen to believe we're all energy fields attached to bodies, and that may sound strange to some people tuning in, but that's my belief, and I think it's if they're open-minded, they would come to that same agreement. The second is Dying to Be Me, written by a gal from India, and the third is a book I've just about two-thirds through it came about four days ago, is Managing Ourselves by Ari uh, Weinzweig, who is the principal at Zingerman's Deli in Ann Arbor, Michigan, which is probably the nation's number one delicatessen. Bob, let's go back to the list of a couple of ideas that you have for us to talk about today. And I, I kind of went sidetracked there, but I really enjoyed it. You also mentioned an idea of window view. What's window view? Window view is a system for real estate brokers who have street level active traffic patterns. It's a system that sits inside a plate glass window, inside a plate glass window, and you put a finger on the outside window not touching the system. The energy from your finger translates through, and you can bring up all your listings, any of the listings, do a mortgage calculation, show pictures of properties you currently have listed, and access other listings around the United States. Made by a company in Chelsea, Michigan. Window Window VUE is the name of the system, and it's been... uh, really, uh, really helpful to us and generate some additional traffic that we hadn't seen before. You also mentioned Vulcan 7. Vulcan 7 is a system that lets you prospect referrals, expireds, and for sale by owners. I thought it was 
a really, really good system for teleprospecting. I also see that you mentioned Tiger leads. Are are you working internet leads as well? We are, and that's a pay-per-click system that the National Association of Realtors just bought that company, and we've been with it since the very start. We were one of the very first two or three firms in the country to use the system. It's a pay-per-click lead system that generates leads over the internet. We then follow up with them, communicate with them, and so it's been a really good system for us and, and a lot of the, the coaching students that I work with. Those tiger leads, those internet leads that come in, what is your follow-up system to make sure that you can convert those and what is your conversion rate? Well, we teleprospect them immediately. Out of the leads that come in, we are generally able to convert one out of 35 to one out of 50 of those leads into a closed transaction. The other is a database that just builds your database and it builds your ability to text and communicate with those people and gives you a, a really a prospect list that is kind of like a backlog of potential buyers and sellers you need to be touching base with all the time. And we do teleprospect those the minute they come in, Mike. Bob, you were interviewed back in 1994 by Howard Britton, and you're being interviewed now in 2014. That's a 20-year gap. How has the real estate industry changed in those 20 years? Oh, it's changed immensely. We have so many more tools. I mean, think about it. I communicated internationally by telex. There were no faxes. There weren't any cell phones. There wasn't any internet. I think Preview Properties was one of the first five or six companies, real estate companies on the internet back in 93. There weren't any emails. Our MLS data came in a big yellow book that we got every three or four weeks. I mean, the tools today are amazing, and the productivity is amazing, but the fundamentals are exactly the same. People do business with people. Back then, we were the gatekeepers of information. So if somebody wanted to know something about a property, they had to call a real estate agent. Today, everybody has the information, but they don't know what the hell to do with it. They need somebody to translate and interpret the information, help them figure out how to solve problems related around that information, and that's the role real estate agents play today versus being the gatekeeper of information as we were, you know, 15, 20 years ago. And I can remember the fight. I mean, I led the consolidation of an MLS system in Michigan into a larger regional MLS system. And it was such a fight because everybody wanted to protect their own territory and didn't want any agents from elsewhere invading their territory. So the business has changed a lot. The great thing about the business is I think there's more opportunity than ever. The very best agents consume, handle, and transact a higher percentage of the business now by far than they did 20 or 25 years ago. And the best agents today are way better than the best agents were 20 or 25 years ago. So those are some of the changes that I see that have taken place. And, you know, I mean, I can remember my first mobile phone. It was a, a box 8 inches by 10 inches by 12 inches sitting on the front seat of my car with no reception. As you mentioned, there was a lot of fear that all this technology and these advancements would eventually wipe out and replace real estate agents, real estate brokers. But you mentioned a great point that 
all this information is no good without somebody interpreting it. And do you feel that that's where our value is? Well, I think our value is in our time, our energy, our knowledge, and our negotiating skills. That's what we get paid for. And that means translating and putting into play and knowing how to utilize the information that we have. And it's so much more accessible, but it requires a lot of diligence, requires a lot of effort. And the work is just as hard, if not harder, today than it was 25 years ago. I mean, I think we see more deals come together and fall apart and get put back together or go away than we ever did 25 years ago. I know that. But that's just part of the part of the process. And the transaction is still one of the two or three biggest financial transactions people will ever do in their lifetime. And we're coming off in Michigan a 10-year depression in the rest of the U.S. A real estate depression has lasted five or six years. And so people are more cautious than ever, yet we have the lowest interest rates in the last 60 or 70 years. And it's proven time and time again that if you buy a piece of property and hang on to it long enough, you're going to make it a major part of your net worth. I mean, I think 78% of, of the American citizens' net worth is in their home. If I remember at the start of this interview, you bought a house for 25000 put some capital in it, and you think it's now worth three twenty. You mentioned that you have your own portfolio, and a lot of people that we talk about, they actually got into the business to create a portfolio. Did you use your own money to seed those, or did you bring in partnerships and partners and other investors to start those? Originally, I used commissions only and build it up to a sizable position. And then after that, I brought in other real estate agents who I knew or who I know and let them participate in the process. And then that led to some other investors. But the size of our Williams and my portfolio, there's really very few people involved. Dozens, not hundreds. Bob, what drives you? Oh, I like the money. (laughs) And the money allows us to buy art, and uh, it's how we keep score. And so uh, I like the challenge. All great real estate agents are competitive. And uh, one other process that I will share with you, Mike, that we hadn't previously talked about, is for the last 25 years, I've used a psychological profile test called the Caliper Test out of Princeton, New Jersey, to evaluate every single potential employee or sales associate that I've ever recruited or brought on board. And all of my coaching students do the same. So you'll make a decision as to whether you bring someone in or not based on that test? Totally, based on the test. This is a very comprehensive test. About 600,000 are given a year. And the potential NBA, Major League Baseball, NHL draftees all take this test before the draft and they track the results and the results have been phenomenal. And used to be I'd interview 32 agents, hire 15 or 16, and maybe one would make it. So after I started using the caliper test, the profile test 25 years ago, my numbers are 32 interviews, four calipers, two hires, and the two hires make it an average of 10 years at a minimum. So statistically, that's played out. What are you looking for? What kind of results are you looking for out of that test that you've had such success on the agent hiring side? 
Well, first of all, it defines whether the people are operations and admin people or salespeople. And then if they're salespeople, it defines their strengths and weaknesses in a whole series of categories. Urgency, thoroughness, attention to detail, which no salespeople have and no salespeople like. Discipline in terms of self-structure, external structure, aggressiveness, assertiveness, ego strength, flexibility, listening skills, a whole set of criteria that the test evaluates. It's not a terribly expensive test. I think it's now $300 per test. And we give it to every single employee, admin and sales, before we hire them. You said that one of the dividers is admin versus sales. Where do you fall in? Well, I'm sales. You mentioned that a really good salesperson is not into the details and the paperwork. And yet it seems to me that you have a really good comprehension of of those details. Do you fall into both categories? Well, a little bit. My thoroughness score, are you ready, is two on a scale of 100, which means the following. I hate it. I don't like it. I don't enjoy it. doesn't mean I can't do it because I have to do it. I mean, I look at financial statements all the time. I look at underwriting properties all the time. But my preference is to be one-on-one, face-to-face with a buyer-seller, solving problems and doing business. That's what I most enjoy, and that's what I'm best at. So the caliper doesn't say you can't do something, but what it says is it doesn't give you a lot of personal satisfaction or enjoyment. When you're looking for salespeople, are you looking for salespeople that have the same caliper results that you've had? Pretty much. Pretty much. Okay? I'm looking for people that are assertive, that have high ego uh, skills, that have a large and, and high sense of urgency, that are listeners, that can learn to just ask questions, that don't need to be thorough because we have a system in Lillian's office here that... We have a listing department, a transaction department, and a closing department. And so once an agent gets the document signed, they turn them over to those departments and they're out doing another transaction. That's very unique still to the industry. And I learned 25 years ago that salespeople would rather be one-on-one with buyers and sellers than they would be filling in the paperwork. So they have two choices. I mean, there are different models in the industry, but none of them function this way. And probably one of the reasons for years we've had one of the most productive offices first in Michigan and then here that exists in North America because we try and take the detail and the stuff people don't like away from them and let somebody who does like it do it. Bob, why have you been so successful? Uh, Probably lucky. (laughs) I find that hard to believe. Lucky? (laughs) Well, I'll never forget my first mentor in a company we started in 1969, and we'd been working around the clock for five days. And we'd started at 5 o'clock on a Friday morning, and we were still working on a project at 10.30 Friday night. And he looked around at the four of us and said, well, just remember, guys, that One day, somebody or lots of people will say, you know what, those guys, everything they touch turns to gold. And they'll never recognize all the hard work you did to get there. And that's probably true because the better you get, the easier we make it look, the more fun it is for us that do a lot. And 
people think you just waved a magic wand and got there. They don't know that uh, I worked 40 hours a week in college as I went through college trying to play a little basketball and graduate in four years. So it's a combination of curiosity, always wanting to learn, doing the hard work, having the self-discipline to try and stay on track. And in my coaching program, we've developed an accountability system And that accountability system has shown agents how they can double, triple, or quadruple their productivity in the same amount of time, frankly, not working much harder than they were working when we started with them. How do they accomplish that? If you're working the same amount of time, how do you multiply your production? Well, there's a a lot of different ways, but one is to develop a written personal and business plan for a two- to three-year period of time ahead of you. The second is to be daily accountable to somebody, and I get 100 or so daily accountability sheets a day, and I manage those daily accountability sheets by deviation. If everybody's on track, I don't bother them, but if they get off track, those sheets are so they have, when they fill it out, they have to look at it and know they're off track and figure out what got them off track. My average commission income for the agents I coach is almost $3.3 million a year, Mike. So let's assume it was $3 million a year and you worked 200 days a year. That's a lot of money per day, 15000 I think, if you do the math per day. So if you're off track for a week, brush is $75,000. So keeping people on track and forcing them to recognize what got off on track, fight with a significant other or somebody in the family has a health issue or uh, a deal blew apart that they had already spent the money on. The bottom line is keeping people on track and focused and accountable makes a huge difference in productivity. And then not doing the stuff that they dislike, but delegating that to somebody else who can handle it for them. You've mentioned your coaching program a few times. If somebody was interested in finding out more about the coaching program, where would they go? Send them to bob at andoverhomes.com, and we'll send out a package to them if they're interested, Mike. And thanks for asking. Sure. So there's not a website they can go to. This is more a a personal one-on-one. I talk to every one of my coaching students on Monday for 15 minutes on the phone, individually. And they're daily accountable to me. They have a weekly top prospect list. And they send me an agenda on Saturday or Sunday of what they want to go through with me on Monday when I talk to them by phone. And I coach agents in New Zealand, Australia, Hong Kong, Beijing, outside of London, in Munich, Toronto, and all over the U.S. How many coaching clients do you have? Uh, generally, it's between 50 and 60. Wow. You're able to talk to all of them on one day. Well, you're a master at making quick conversations, aren't you? So I guess you can talk to all of them on a Monday. Well, if you have an agenda of what they want to talk about, you know what you want to talk about. I mean, most of them would tell you I call them exactly on the minute of their 15-minute increment, and we're always done before the 15 minutes is over or just when it ends. And they all recognize that. And some of them, lots of them I've been coaching 10 or 12 or 14 years, Mike. 
Bob, if you were going to advise a brand new agent who's just getting in the business, what would you tell them to do first? Find somebody who can be their role model. Study everything you can learn about the business. Get hooked up with a firm that provides great, great education, and there are very few of those, and become an understudy for the top agent in that firm and join their team for a year or so so you can learn all you can learn while you're transitioning and have a plan and become a lister because the lister is totally in control of their destiny. If you're a buyer's agent, you're working for everybody else. Seems to be different schools of thought on whether a new agent should go directly into being a lister or working with sellers. It sounds like your advice is go directly there. My advice is go directly there. Have a plan, Mike, a two-year plan for what you're going to accomplish and how you're going to get there because it always takes longer than you think it's going to take, no matter how long you think it's going to take. You're a big believer in planning it out. Is that so that you have a vision of where you're going? It's so you have a vision and so you have a focus because I think the two most important things in this business to be a mega producer are focus and consistency. What happens is people will make 30 or 40 telephone calls and won't get anything and will quit. Or they'll make 100 calls Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday and not get the satisfactory result and say, oh, that telephone prospecting doesn't work. And lastly, if you do it day after day, you'll get better at it. And when you get better at it, you'll get better results. Bob, do you think that interviews like the one we're doing now with Mastermind Agent are valuable? I think they're invaluable. I mean, over the years, I've had so many people thank me for doing the Brenton interviews and the other interviews I've done and the sharing. And for me, it's a way to give back, just like the meetup program I do is a way to give back to uh, people who want to learn. And I think at some point in your life, uh, you need to give back. And so eh, that's kind of the stage of life I'm in at the moment. But I think it's imperative that people coming into the business learn everything they can as fast as they can. I mean, we laugh lots of times about our firm here. Stepping in the door is like taking a sip out of a water hydrant. It blows you over, but those that stand and take the drink will survive and be very, very, very good because there's no magic. There's no magic. It's discipline. It's focus. It's consistency. It's hard work, and it's a big amount of curiosity and desire to learn about the business you're in. Bob, I've gotten to the end of my questions for today. Do you have any parting thoughts for the listeners? No, you've worn me out, Mike. <laughs> I've I got to go back to work, but I've enjoyed our visit, and uh, I hope somebody out there will find it useful. And I think what you're doing by interviewing top agents around the country and perhaps the world is a really, really great service. And I hope the listeners understand how much education you're providing them and how fast they can get it if they just listen to the series of interviews you've done, Mike. And I thank you for the industry. Well, Bob, thank you for showing us what amazing achievements are possible in this industry and in life. You shared your humble beginnings on a small farm in central Illinois where your parents taught you self-determination, work ethic, and drive. Your college days, where you worked 40 hours per week, played basketball, studied, received a diploma in four years, and became the highest-paid graduating senior. 
your drive to start, run, and operate multiple businesses, your early retirement and quick boredom, your 25-year stellar career in real estate where you broke all the sales records, set a new bar for achievement, and amassed a huge real estate fortune. Bob, you have achieved the pinnacle of success for a real estate agent and an American entrepreneur. Thank you for sharing and being our top agent of the month. And join us next call when we talk to an agent who sold 356 homes last year and over 6,000 homes in her career. Find out who she is on the next success call. If you like the show and want to know when the next one's coming out, click the subscribe button on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you want to hear more episodes like this, give the show a five-star review and write a quick comment. I read them all, and it motivates me to keep going and share the top agent success stories with you. Thanks. If you're looking for more ways to generate leads, check out our sponsor, Real GTV, real estate agent lead generation television, and their giant database library of video trainings where top agents reveal, demonstrate, and discuss their best lead generation methods. Visit RealGTV, R-E-A-L-G dot TV. If you're low on funds or just want to get the maximum leverage, check out my masterclass webinar titled Top 5 Free Lead Sources for Real Estate Agents. Learn more at FreeLeadTime.com. That's FreeLeadTime.com. Oh, and if you have a real estate friend who needs some inspiration, tell them about the Success Calls podcast. And don't you forget to subscribe right now to hear all the great top agent ideas. Keep moving forward. You've been listening to Success Calls on the Mastermind Agent Network, where top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com.